usability is a huge issue, and even more so, although not only because the introduction of a whole new generation into the workforce. So increasingly, we see younger millennials coming into finance and expecting to have the same technology experience at work that they have in their private lives. And that's not how finance systems had been designed in the past. Mm -hmm. They were kind of clunky and not very user-friendly. And that must change because otherwise they're going to leave. If they go into your environment and it's really low tech, they're going to look for a different environment. Millennials move through jobs more quickly. And one of the things they look for is that savviness, that experience. So I think applications need to be set up from the start by vendors to run on mobile devices, for example, and using things like drag and drop capabilities. And there's got to be a modernization or an update of the customer experience through whatever it is that is the front end interface to the user. But it's not just about millennials. I think it's going to be a lot easier for everyone. Increasing demand to work with these technologies. If the technology is simpler, cleaner, user-friendly, we will see existing workers and older workers adjusting much more rapidly. Hi, I'm Danny. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole, or what we call spend culture. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Spend Culture Stories podcast. We have another special guest for you today. Her name is Neely Asades, the Senior Research Director at the Hackett Group. Welcome, Neely, and thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be here, Danny. Thank you so much. And uh, Neely is a leading finance digital transformation, advanced analytics, and APM thought leader with years of experience researching, writing, and speaking about the role of the finance function and of financial executives within global enterprises. Neely, can you uh, give our audience a little bit of a background to yourself, maybe in your own words? Sure. So I have been working in the finance space for quite a long time, but I started really early and I love it. I've been in different areas of finance from treasury to enterprise performance management, financial planning and analysis, always keeping a foot on what practitioners are doing. So trying to be working with theory and research, quantitative and qualitative, but keeping an eye on how it affects what are the practical implications for finance professionals? Um, and I think that has distinguished what I've done so far in both blogs and research and conference presentations from some other, um, other sources of information about finance trends and changes. That's wonderful. And we have had a few guests from the research space on the podcast, but I think you're the first that specifically likes talking about digital transformation in the space and also talking about um, a lot of these newer examples of technology that finance professionals are now using. So I'm pretty excited to talk to you about this. I'm very excited about it too. It's probably my favorite topic. I read a few articles that you wrote on LinkedIn, which is um, how I found you. So I guess we can jump straight to the first question. Sure. 
So digital transformation normally can usually work when there's buy-in from both the company and executives. Buy-in, as sure you know, probably know, it's usually something that is really challenging for a lot of organizations. So from your experience, how do you think you could get the whole company on board with a new solution pioneered by finance? That's a great question because you really do need to look at digital transformation as a major transformative event, just like finance has looked at transformation in other aspects and in the past. And transformation and change are hard for a lot of employees and staff to accept and as well as senior management. So what I think a couple of things that finance can do to make it more likely that it gets the support it needs and the transformation is successful is to increase its visibility or perhaps augment its status within the organization where finance is often viewed as a control and compliance. And you can do that by highlighting success stories, incidents in which finance has added value to the business and providing insight in strategic meetings and management decisions so that both management and the entire company has as much holds finance in greater value and estimate. And I think that's very important because when they come up with a new idea, let's digitally transform, it's going to work better. There's going to be better support. Absolutely. I think that part of just educating the executive team and also the whole entire company on the value of finance, that's really important. And I definitely see that as well, because we talk to a lot of CFOs and controllers on our podcast, and they always say, you know, people always say where the controls behind a company, and there's always this perception behind this role. But there's more than that, especially with how the role will be evolving in the future. That's a very good point, because we see the role of the CFO changing quite dramatically and demand from finance stakeholders for finance to play a much more strategic business value add role. And in our data and inexperience with clients, there's certainly a shift in the focus for finance from being a number cruncher and control type function into one that is more strategically focused and therefore has an impact, is a catalyst for transformation and change for the enterprise. Absolutely. That's a really interesting topic that you're speaking of, because what we realize is people are actually the hardest things to really get a hold of within a company. It's not really the process or the systems, but you got to first understand where the people are coming from. So a really interesting topic we're playing around at Procurify is uh, getting all your employees to think like CFOs, to kind of be these finance partners within an organization. How do you think an organization can do this and how can finance support this initiative? I think that CFOs today, as I was just saying, are thinking much more broadly, are thinking much more strategically. So thinking like a CFO to me means looking at the bigger picture, looking beyond your own function, your own business, your own role, and understanding how you fit within that enterprise structure and achieving the enterprise objectives. The other part of it where finance can really support the CFO-like thinking across functions and businesses is by taking on a more disciplined approach to planning. So it keeps a constant eye on generating shareholder value. So for example, finance can work with business leaders, show them how their plans align with the overall enterprise objectives and achieving the targets. The other thing finance can do is create greater understanding of the cost-benefit ratio. So put in place cost management methodologies 
um, like zero-based budgeting that really surface the actual benefits of the investment. So it's a more disciplined approach, a more sustainable approach. Everybody has clarity and, and visibility into what their expenses and what their investments are doing to the overall company. Absolutely. I think you touch up on a great point there, which is getting your employees to kind of be part of what we call spend culture. And what you mentioned with zero-based budgeting, there was a movement that happened in a few years that are that is really coming back. So a lot of the CFOs that we've talked to, they've said that zero-based is the way to go for their organization because it just allows employees to feel like they're also part of this whole initiative. Yeah. And we also sort of very much see an increase in the number of requests among our clients to come help with the implementation um, and the creation of the ZBB strategy. And I think part of it has to do with cost pressures and prospects for a um, sort of uncertain prospect for the economy. But a big part of it is creating employee ownership and a sense across the board of how do I fit into the bigger picture. Absolutely. And that's a really good question because the next question I have for you is sometimes when it comes to spending on behalf of the company or when it comes to current expenses, there's this question of whether it, the control should come from the top down or whether it should be shared within the company. And I think that's a question you're kind of talking about as well. So how should someone balance accountability and control versus freedom and accessibility of this data and these controls? That's certainly a very fine line that you have to walk because you want your business to be innovative, creative, respond quickly to changes in the very fast changing environment and the evolution of new competitors almost overnight. But you don't want managers allocating resources. And I'm going to say something I actually don't like when other people say willy nilly. But I think it's very appropriate in this case. You don't want a culture of spending where there is no accountability. So one effective way, I think, to balance these two seemingly contradictory trends is adopt a different planning mindset and budgeting mindset and forecasting mindset by the finance organization. For example, we see companies, organizations at the leading edge of financial planning establishing uh, rapid deployment teams to activate what is set up as a standalone sort of emergency forecasting process when something big happens. So there's both a sense of we are keeping course and maintaining our objectives and there's control around that. But at the same time, if things change, you can respond very quickly, change the underlying assumptions, reallocate capital, within a disciplined approach. So we see that happening more and more, and that contributes to agility, which is really where you want to be if you want to succeed in this care and business environment. Absolutely. And I love what you mentioned about agility, because for a lot of tech startups, that's what they're trying to go towards, which is, you know, fasten your toes and be able to adjust based on what situation happens. Ironically, we do also have a quiz called the Spend Culture Quiz, where (laughs) one of our quiz culture types is Agile Spend Culture. That's interesting. Literally just got the result of a survey from earlier in the year, which we call the Agile Business Model Performance Study. And we looked at what finance executives say about uh, functional agility and why it's important and what are some of the ways they define it, empower it, drive it. And what their definition was, and our definition for agility, has to do with the speed of decision-making and speed of execution. 
And all of them, very well, a large majority of the top performers, right, the people who ranked at the very top according to a set of metrics, told us that it's critical. Agility is absolutely critical to achieving the company's annual objective. So we're not talking about certainly necessarily changing the objectives, but finding agile ways to recoup quickly and adjust strategy so you're still in line within what you set out to do. Right, absolutely. Just making sure that you're able to kind of go with the times and change whatever you're doing really quickly. I think that's what really makes innovative and also company that it's able to kind of challenge the status quo. Yeah, that's right. So I know uh, this has been a huge kind of question on LinkedIn. So digital transformation is reshaping a lot of how finance is working. And there's a lot of technologies where you could even call it buzzwords, but a lot of people say that AI and, you know, cognitive is really taking a huge part in finance right now. Um, A lot of people are scared that smart automation is displacing jobs. How do you think digitalization will affect the finance workforce? It's a very raw nerve for a lot of finance (laughs) professionals, and I think it's going to have a significant impact. There's definitely a fear about displacing humans, whether it's bots or AI or cognitive. And a lot of these bots, for example, take over a lot of manual work. Cognitive and AI can perform much of the first level analysis that even knowledge workers have been doing like in FPNA, generally in finance. So we ran an analysis and I think we're probably, this is the first one I saw that is based in empirical data of what will be the impact between today's finance and a fully digitized finance function of the future. And we don't have a time frame. It's not in three years or five years or 10 years. It will really depend on each company's progress. The results appear very alarming, but I'm going to put them within context in a second. So what we found is that the finance of the future will be able to execute today's workload with half as many people. Wow. And that sounds really scary, but it's not that simple because the emphasis here is on today's work. We think tomorrow's work is going to be quite different. It's going to emphasize distinctly human capabilities like interpretation and storytelling, interpersonal communication. So we see an expansion in the workload. So while some jobs will disappear, a lot of others will be created. They're just going to be different than the jobs we have today. So the future is not as dark. In fact, we see quite a lot of opportunity if you have the right skill set to succeed and thrive in the finance area. And that's really exciting to hear because I think that kind of relates back to how a lot of roles will start evolving and even diverging as new skill sets are being demanded in the future. So as a finance professional, what do you think are the skills and competencies that you should focus on to master, ensure that you're future ready for this kind of change? What we see is perhaps a little bit, um, well, not counterintuitive, but more holistic than than probably people would assume. I think everybody understands that uh, the skills of the future would include a much higher level of data savviness and technology savviness. You're going to have to know how to use these new smart automation technologies. But that's that's just part of the process. Um, Very much in terms of the skills that are important, we see a growth 
in the need for uh, four specific skills, one being certainly talent in technology and data, but just as important, creative thinking, design capability, design thinking, and customer centricity. So there's going to be a lot of focus on skills that are, I don't want to call them soft skills exactly, because that really makes a lot of finance folks uncomfortable. (laughs) But it's more of the human side of things in the sense that that's where they're going to differentiate themselves from the machine. You're going to have to wear many hats and some of those hats will be quite different and there's going to be more sort of an emotional intelligence requirement than just technical skills and and number crunching. So how do you think uh, someone could start developing these skills very early on? Hopefully companies have a a sense of responsibility for helping their employees develop those competencies. And for a couple of reasons, one is talent ranks as the second fastest growing business risk for organizations today. So it's really hard to find skilled talent. So your best option is developing the talent you have by providing a comprehensive, effective talent management program. With finance, we know that 70% of the cases, the new hires are internal, not external. So this is not about reaching out and getting new people to fill existing jobs. It's really about training existing people. And the most effective way we see in augmenting the skill set is a little counterintuitive again in the sense that companies are using a lot more job rotations and experiential training uh, versus online or technology-enabled training modules. And I think um, one of our clients that I talked to not long ago, Bosch, which is a large European company, uh, you may recognize this from their high-end appliances, although they do a lot more stuff than that. And they have established a finance academy that includes an intense five-day course in skills, in-person instruction, but really extends over 100 days, where following those five days, the graduates are placed in actual positions and whether they are, um, where they can practice the skills they've, that they've acquired and master them. And they're evaluated not on some kind of a test at the end of the five days, you know, some check the box, multiple questioning. Actually, Mm -hmm. they're evaluated at the end of the 100 days on whether or not they manage to solve a problem using the new skills. Companies are doing a lot more. I work with HP, and they have an incredibly effective and comprehensive people development program. And we see how they are teaching through different methods, different channels, depending on people's learning styles, a lot of these skills that we're talking about. What's important is that as a finance professional, you grab on to these opportunities. You look for them. You take proactive approach to it and really chart your own career path because uh, ultimately that's your job. Nobody else is going to do it for you. Absolutely. I think you touched on a really great point, which is just get more of that on the spot training, because I know there's a lot of um, webinars and online resources out there, but it doesn't really beat the real thing, like being just kind of thrown in the deep end and making sure that you're applying the skills that you learn. I think that's what a lot of great companies are doing. So thanks for sharing that with the story of your client. Of course. So let's uh, rewind the tape a little bit and going back to 
a company spending perspective, just because um, in our podcast, we're trying to explore the intersection between what happens when a company spends its resources and how people are involved. So that's how we got the term spend culture. So from a company spending perspective, where do you think are the biggest opportunities when it comes to automation and reducing manual work? So we kind of talked a little bit about where companies can develop their employees to kind of be more future-proof. So what are some things that they could do when it comes to company spending? For now, I think, and what I've seen is somewhat of a misconception about how to look at the cost-benefit RRI of investment in technology. We've seen a lot of hype in the market about things like robotics, but when we actually go and measure the cost reduction implications of robotics, we still don't see in practice a lot of significant savings. That's because most finance organizations are still in a pretty early stage. They're only exploring and perhaps running pilots. So when you put five robots in place, that's not going to affect your headcount or expenses so much. Um, It's only when you scale it up and now you have 200 or 300 robots that you can start seeing those efficiency gains that you can, the dollar and cents type gains that you see from digital transformation. But I think the focus on cost takeout is a little misplaced because the real payback for digital investment is in freeing up capacity for staff to do more valuating work. Um, A lot of companies have been disappointed so far by the cost savings of automation, but I think that's a lot of times because vendors just set unrealistic expectations and they're using their own metrics to measure the payback. Absolutely. There's always some sort of bias when it comes to that kind of data. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, just from a manual works perspective, can you explain a little bit about what this kind of manual work looks like in your own words? Yes, absolutely. So let's take robotics, for example. You can set up a robot. A robot is not an actual robot like we imagine, you know, in science fiction type films. It's basically a piece of software that is written based on a set of rules. So in situations where you have multiple systems, for example, an ERP, and then a standalone accounting system or standalone closed consolidation system. Typically, what you have is somebody sitting there looking at one screen and looking at another and just re-entering data. So the people are doing the sort of manual integration. You can program a bot to do this very same thing by scanning one and inputting data into another set of fields in a fraction of the time and a fraction of the cost. So we see RPA basically being deployed in areas where there's a lot of system disintegration or system plurality as a way to tie things together and improve the movement and flow of information and reducing manual intervention. We also see them sitting on top of control processes and the same goes, in fact, more so even for artificial intelligence and cognitive They sit on top of a control process and can really very effectively, using pattern recognition and learning from experience, detect all kinds of problems, a potential violation of a policy or a payment that went awry, and they can alert the right individuals when when it's necessary. So it saves people a lot of time from just sitting and looking and running through transactions to see perhaps whether something went wrong. Wow, that sounds like uh, those sci-fi films, you know, when you have uh, someone there kind of (laughs) doing all the work that you don't have to do. 
Yeah, well, a lot of that is work that a lot of finance professionals really don't want to do. So <laughs> I think there's a sense of relief as well, handing it off to something else, to somebody else, actually something else. We're talking about a machine. There is a challenge in learning how to interface with the machines, and that's a whole different cultural topic. But we've looked into that, and there are ways you can make machines not more human, but a little bit more palatable for human interaction. Absolutely. And for like organizations that are not ready yet to take the big jump towards maybe something like RPA, what other ways could they do to kind of automate their entire processes? RPA is different, perhaps, from some of the other smart automation technologies. But the first step is to consolidate your existing systems. So if you are operating on multiple systems, try and bring those together if you can using a cloud-based solution, for example, that pulls data from multiple sources and can execute higher level of functionality. They're mainstream by now. They're not considered sort of emerging technologies. Almost all the vendors, well, the ones I know, offer a cloud-based solution that really solves that Uh, integration problem. So the first step is to optimize what you've got. And then, so you either modernize what you have or eliminate things that are no longer working or look for a new solution where there is a need, but whatever you have is not working as well. So I think using cloud-based solution is perhaps the first and most important step to setting yourself up for future transformative change through technology because it creates a platform to which you can easily bolt on all kinds of things. You can embed AI in it. You can put a robot on top of it. It's a much more flexible platform. So I think that's probably the first step before you dive into some more advanced technology. Although RPA, although kind of new, it's not exactly new. It's always been around and it's very quickly implemented and produces quick benefits. And you don't have to be a rocket science to do it. You need to use sometimes external help, but transfer this knowledge. So I think RPA is not really a far-fetched move yet for, for finance. It's really right there at their fingertips. So it's really funny because we've talked to a lot of organizations uh, where even the fact that they are moving away from, let's say, a paper-based invoicing process to a software, mm-hmm. they're already scared. So making the jump from something like a cloud-based solution to a new emerging technology like AI or RPA, I'm sure that causes even more friction within an organization. Well, with things like customer-to-cash type processes or counter-report, There's a lot of use of a technology that's been around for a long time, optical recognition, optical character recognition. So just by using that, you can eliminate, you're not even doing robots or AI, you're using a well-established technology, and all of a sudden, you don't have to have a clerk looking at an invoice or looking at a payment. It goes out when it needs to go out in the right way. So there are a lot of established things you can do to help yourself move up that technology enablement curve. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, one also very important thing that a lot of people care about is the ROI. I know you mentioned this a little bit that some organizations, they get frustrated when they implement some sort of vendor solution and they don't really see the specific cost savings yet. So I'm curious from your perspective, how can one really measure that kind of ROI of an effective finance solution and what key indicators do you usually use? 
We look at that very carefully because, as you said, as I said, the cost, immediate dollar and cent savings may not be as apparent until you really scale up. But one of the things you can look at is the quality of processes and whether or not that has improved. So we did this analysis end of last year where we used our, we have a pretty extensive benchmarking database of hundreds of companies and thousands of finance benchmarks. We used that and applied a filter that really discern who is technology enabled, highly technology enabled, low technology enablement, and measure the difference in process quality and effectiveness between those populations. And what we found is the highly technology enabled finance organizations also had more effective processes. So they, and those can be measured quite easily with metrics like cycle time, metrics like error rate, metrics like the percent of time that staff spends on collecting and compiling data versus analyzing it. So these are three indicators of how you can assess the effectiveness results of your automation project. Yeah, and those are some great metrics to kind of just get your organization on board and kind of even selling to your executive team, I think, when it comes to implementing something. Like here's what we expect and here's what the return might be. Maybe that's something people can do to kind of benchmark their benefits. There are a couple of things, thoughts that pop into my mind when you said that. So one, although it's hard to measure the efficiency benefits, it is, um, and there are metrics you can use, we do see or foresee a significant drop in the cost of finance as a percentage of revenue when companies move from that low enablement, high enablement, or low digital, highly digital world-class finance. In fact, from the baseline of just a typical finance organization, all the way to a highly digital finance organization, you can reduce your cost by 60%, which is incredibly big and significant. So we can keep those strategy things in place. But one of the other aspects of measuring the effects is looking at the experience or the customer or the stakeholder experience of finance as a result of tools like data visualization, AI, RPA, are your customers, people in different functions, the business leaders, are they having a better experience of finance? And the answer is yes. Again, using the same analysis we found, because we also do a stakeholder survey, that executives are so much more likely to say finance is meeting their expectations if finance is more digitally enabled. That's really interesting findings there. I would love um, for the guests to be able to kind of see parts of the report. If you don't mind, I'm sharing a link to the report with me and then I can include that in the show notes too. Absolutely. No problem at all. Awesome. So we've talked about a lot of um, digital transformation, a lot of emerging technologies. Just based on your findings, what are the technologies that finance are adopting the fastest and are the most prevalent and popular among finance organizations? So we see there are two trends and they're not exactly aligned, but there is a trend of existing adoption levels and how much with percentage of finance organizations that adopted a particular technology. And then there's the fastest growing technologies. And of course, the fastest growing are the ones that are sort of least adopted. So that's where we see the growth trend. But interestingly, we see growth across 
technologies from cloud to uh, master data management to modernized data platforms, cognitive AI. We look at all of these key issue studies every year, and we did one earlier this year. But the fastest growing ones are cognitive and AI, analytics, data architecture, I think, and MDM. So don't hold me to the fire with this because I don't have the data right in front of me. But the fastest growing are the most emerging, the ones we are just talking about. And when we say fastest growing, in all cases, is more than a doubling in the adoption between now and two or three years from now. I know RPA is forecast to grow 3.5 times between now and two, three year horizon by finance executives and cognitive is two and a half times and analytics was 2.3 times. So it's a really significant, dramatic increase in the adoption of these tools, these smart automation solutions that we were discussing. So what are some techniques that companies can kind of use to onboard their entire team when it comes to this? Because, you know, um, usability is a huge concern when it comes to a lot of these tools, especially if it's going to be implemented department-wide or company-wide. Yeah, usability is a huge issue. And even more so, although not only because the introduction of a whole new generation into the workforce. So increasingly, we see younger millennials coming into finance and expecting to have the same technology experience at work that they have in their private lives. And that's not how finance systems had been designed in the past. Mm -hmm. They were kind of clunky and not very user-friendly. And that must change because otherwise they're going to leave. If they go into your environment and it's really low tech, they're going to look for a different environment. Millennials move through jobs more quickly. And one of the things they look for is that savviness, that experience. So I think applications need to be set up from the start by vendors to run on mobile devices, for example, and using things like drag and drop capabilities. And there's got to be a modernization or an update of the customer experience through whatever it is that is the front end interface to the user. But it's not just about millennials. I think it's going to be a lot easier for everyone. Increasing demand to work with these technologies. If the technology is simpler, cleaner, user-friendly, we will see existing workers and older workers adjust much more rapidly. Absolutely. It's pretty crazy because I used to work in some organizations where we've used a software that's almost 20 years old. And me, you know, I'm in my uh, mid-20s. I was like, I don't know if I want to use this. And then my boss was like, (laughs) well, this is what we have. And so everyone has to learn it regardless of whether you want to use it or not. So I think the shift definitely needs to happen, especially with, you know, more and more people um, that are younger, like me going into the workforce, um, they're not going to want to deal with solutions that are not easy to use. And they also want to have, from our research, we see that another way to attract and retain younger talent is by offering virtual solutions so that you can work remotely and have a better work-life balance. These flexible working hours are very important to the incoming workforce. And if you're stuck in front of your computer with an old, some kind of an old software, that defeats the purpose. So you need to have much more easily accessible interfaces to the company systems that you can do from home when you want to do it, 
and have the ability to maintain a better work-life balance, this is a very important issue for younger generations coming in. Absolutely. So one great piece that you wrote on zero-based budgeting, I read that on your LinkedIn. So as companies move towards what we mentioned, you know, the more agile kind of spend culture, more agile workforce, how do you think movements such as zero-based budgeting, how do you think this will change the ways teams manage internal controls and compliance? And how does that actually work along with technology? That's a great question because ZBB has a bad reputation or at least has had a bad reputation as a quite draconian exercise. And usually something that companies do post-acquisition to rationalize their workforce, reduce headcount, reduce costs. So for a lot of finance people, ZBB and a lot of other throughout the enterprise, when people say ZBB, they think we're going to lose our job. And that's something that needs to be handled very delicately and very effectively through transparency and explanation of the more strategic nature of ZBB rather than we're trying to cut costs. Not arbitrarily, but almost so. So traditionally, GBB was about everyone starting everything from scratch every year. That's just no longer feasible in this environment that's moving so fast and change is happening at an unprecedented rate. So GBB has gone through a kind of an evolution to what we call GBB 2.0 or GBB Lite. And the way that's different is that it's instead of encompassing the entire organization in this exercise every year, ZBB is applied on a targeted basis based on perhaps like cost levels in a particular business unit or else the variability of costs somewhere in a functional unit. So there's going to be a big effect, a big payback from stabilizing that, the cost trends. So instead of looking at everything, you start with a couple of places, you apply it within that function or business or a smaller part of a a big business and get some quick wins and show them to everyone. So the next year you choose two other functions or businesses on a rolling basis. Just make sure you come back to the place where you started, you know, every few years, every three years, for example, go back to a function you examined and cleaned up three years ago just to assess whether the, co- the corporate spend culture has been sustainable and people are doing what's needed with co- the right cost accountability. And that, to me, does not conflict with agility. It's actually a driver of agility because being cost competitive means that you are able to add or remove ad costs if you have to for investment. It means your margins may be wider than your competitors. So it provides a boost to companies' abilities to compete in a very fast-changing business environment. Absolutely. And thank you so much for sharing that. Some of our audience, we've heard of the term zero-based budgeting before, but I think the way that you explain it, it gives us a little bit more of an insight on how organizations are currently using it. So that's a really great application, I think. I think another factor with ZBB today is that technologies are now available mm-hmm. to get granular with the data in ways we could never have done before. So the transparency and visibility to really, uh, to cost factors, every organization is now rapid and very much accessible. So it makes it easier to implement the ZBB initiative because it doesn't suck up so much time on the part of the team that's doing the project. 
Mm, absolutely. And I think like um, one thing that one previous guest has told us before is every time you implement a new framework, it's always great to have like an manual for your employees so that they will be able to understand it in their own words instead of um, just having the finance function do it from the top, maybe let every employee kind of be more educated on what it means and how that affects organization. Also affecting from that perspective is, and I've seen finance executives do that, they kind of travel the world if they're global or the country if they're domestic and do like brown bag lunches or town halls where they explain a financial concept or initiative not in technical terms, but in words that everybody can understand and internalize. So it doesn't sound like some kind of gibberish coming from up top, mm-hmm. but it's within the context of what your business is, how it's going to work within your business, affect your life, makes it much more understandable and digestible by the organization overall. Yeah, absolutely. Just without using those kind of jargon, because uh, people like me who's not in finance, I would not be able to understand <laughs> that. Well, it's, a, it's really a turnoff when you use it. People just become deaf to the rest of the message. Yeah. So it's not very productive. Exactly. So this is really my last question for you, Neely. What are some resources that finance professionals can kind of really read into or perhaps watch to prepare their firm for the future of digital transformation? There's a lot of free online access to courses. Um, I actually look, I'm taking a course uh, at edX, which is ran by Harvard on uh, data science. So there are a lot of free resources out there that you can take advantage of. You have to do it at your own time, and but it is an investment in your future. So it's definitely worth doing and kind of accumulate these skills that are going to be important going forward. You can work with external providers of research and data like we are at Hackett, where you receive access to different strategies and corporate examples. You can benchmark how you're doing against other companies in your field. So there's also external sources you can turn to as an organization to help figure out what you need to do to move forward. But I think for the individual professional, the options are, there are a lot more options than there used to be. There are certification programs that different professional associations and companies offer. For example, we offer one in analytics, in advanced analytics. The Association of Financial Professionals, I'm sorry, AFP, has an actual FPNA certificate, so, which kind of forces you in a rigorous way to study new analytics formats and different tools you need to have. So there's a lot available you can do that are outside the curriculum of your own company's training program. So awesome how everything's now um, online, so accessible to everybody. It's great. I mean, I do that with data science, but I also do it as passionately with philosophy and anthropology. So I'm trying, it's amazing how many connections you can make from like behavioral science to economics and business performance. So I try to use that to expand my knowledge base beyond what is specifically finance. Yeah, that's awesome. Like just having that cross-functional learning and visibility, I think that's what really makes you, you know, a well-rounded person. And think creatively, which, as we said earlier, is a big thing going into the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today on this podcast. Oh, I had a great time. Thank you for inviting me.
I had a great time too. And I'm sure our guests will be super excited to hear about this topic. It is a really popular topic and I'm sure they'll find a lot of great insights in here. I'm glad we had a chance to speak. Awesome. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. You too. Thanks for tuning in on another episode of Spend Culture Stories. If you like the series, please support us by leaving us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. And be sure to subscribe so you can get notified of the newest episodes. We try to post every episode every Wednesday. This podcast is sponsored by Procurify, a software solution that is reinventing the way organizations spend. Procurify allows an accessible and convenient way to request for purchases, get approval from your manager, while allowing your finance team to get the visibility and control you need on every purchase. Learn more about Procurify at www.procurify.com.